<clears throat> the text for this morning is from uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. I will be reading in French, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Quelques saducents qui nient que les morts ressuscitent viennent trouver Jésus. Ils lui posent la question suivante. Maître, dans ses écrits, Moïse nous a laissé ce commandement. Si un homme vient à mourir en laissant une femme, mais pas d'enfant, son frère doit épouser sa veuve pour donner un descendant au défunt. Or, il y avait sept frères. L'aîné se maria et il mourra sans laisser d'enfant. Le second, puis le troisième épouse la veuve. Et ainsi de suite, quelques, et ainsi de suite jusqu'au septième. Et ils mouraient tous, les sept, sans avoir des enfants. En fin de compte, la femme mourait elle aussi. Eh bien, cette femme, à la, à la résurrection, de quel de sept frères sera-t-elle la femme Car ils l'ont tous épousé. Ils l'ont ils ont tous épousé. Jésus lui dit, dans le monde présent, l'homme et femme se marient. Mais ceux qui seront jugés dignes de la résurrection d'être les morts pour faire partie du monde à venir ne se marient plus. Ils ne pourront pas non plus mourir parce qu'ils seront comme les anges et ils seront fils de Dieu. Puisqu'ils seront ressuscités, que, puisqu seront ressuscités, que les morts ressuscités, Moïse lui dit, l'a indiqué lorsque il a question de besoin odeur. En effet, il appelle ce Seigneur le Dieu d'Abraham, le Dieu d'Isaïque et le Dieu de Jacob. Or, Dieu n'est pas le Dieu de mort, mais le Dieu de vivant. C'est donc bien que pour lui, les pétrades sont tous les trois vivants. Là-dessus, quelques spécialistes de la loi prient la parole. Tu as bien répondu, maître, car il n'osait plus lui poser des questions. Jésus l'y interroguait à son tour. Comment se fait-il, l'on dit que le maître d'être doit être un descendant de Jacob? This is God's word. Please be seated. All right. Kids are being dismissed uh, for a children's church and a reminder to parents to pick them up right before or right after you take communion. If you're visiting today, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at, at Trinity City Church. And what you're walking into is a sermon series we started a couple weeks back called Blessed, uh, Delighting in the Good Life. And the purpose of this sermon series has been to really try to unpack what we experience in this world that is a framework that the world presents to us as the good life, but often we experience it, that in a way that leaves us anxious and exhausted and restless, and then trying to compare that to themes of Scripture that Scripture would describe as this is the good life, this is the way that God has made the world and made you, and to enter into that way of love and life in a way uh, that brings delight and also perseverance through this world that is not our own. That's been the goal. So after a couple sermons that set up uh, those, uh, this sermon series, we've been starting to look at really specific topics 
uh, about things like relationships and uh, uh, in the future we're going to look at some things like some uh, topics concerning uh, technology, work, rest, justice, and suffering all in light of this idea of what the good life is. The blessed life, the happy person is what that means. Uh, so last week we looked at friendship. Next week we're going to look at households and especially parenting or our vocations of mothering and fathering and parenting and kids and that sort of thing. Uh, today, we're going to look at romance and sex. That's what we're up to today. Uh, so here's some disclaimers in light of that before I get into the sermon, because usually if you talk on such an intimate topic, uh, then I think uh, some disclaimers are always warranted. I posted this uh, in the Covenant Members Forum too, but just as a reminder, I would rate this sermon about PG-13. It's not rated R, it's not gonna get, it's not gonna go there, but concerning the topics, it would be probably about PG-13. I'm gonna be respectful in the way that I bring things up, but it's, uh, if you're parents, uh, you might have some things to talk about uh, after this sermon. So that's one warning. Uh, another disclaimer, uh, I've done so many sermons over the years now of pastoral ministry on topics like singleness and sex, sexuality, body, gender, marriage, uh, and there's so many different directions that you can take a sermon like this, and I spent a considerable amount of time this week just trying to focus it on maybe one thread and one area for this sermon, and this sermon really is going to focus on more of the romantic aspect of what our culture gives as a view of romance and sex compared to scripture. Uh, this is really one sermon that could also be part of a multiple series of multiple weeks unpacking mul multiple topics associated with sex. So in light of that, you have to give me a little bit of grace that there are going to be things that I will say that I'm just not going to have time to unpack. Uh, and in light of that, this sermon will assume so many of the things I've already said throughout the years on this topic. Uh, I stand with the historic and global consensus of the Christian faith in these matters, and I also stand with anyone here this morning who uh, is going to wrestle with some of the things I'm about to say and to remind you that this is a place and this is a church where you can struggle out loud and ask questions that might come out of a sermon like this. Last thing I'll say before I pray. Uh, I understand that romance and sex is a very sensitive topic, but it's important to address it, especially in a church. I'm going to be as careful as I can, even when I speak very directly about some things, yet most likely I am going to say some things in this sermon that could stir up some deep emotions and experiences from individuals. And if that happens to you, uh, especially if it's something that I say in passing and, and don't have the time to unpack, I would encourage you to lean into why you feel that way, what's being stirred up, and find some safe friends and conversations where you can unpack that with them. All right? I better pray. Should we pray? I think I should pray. I need some help. I'm going to pray, so let's pray. Lord, there's a vision of the good life that our world often gives us that is leaving us so exhausted and so confused when it comes to these very intimate matters. Lord, you've spoken uh, very clearly, sometimes vividly, about uh, your purposes for romance, sex, marriage, 
And also, Lord, your scripture has been very clear about why these things are often frustrated. But Lord, give us hope. Give us grace. Give us eyes to see that as we travel through this often difficult and frustrating world on our way to our true home, that you are with us. You are giving us grace and forgiveness uh, to be able to relieve these burdens and give them to Christ because he cares for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My, um, my wife got a new job at Northwestern uh, University. I think University of Northwestern St. Paul is what it's called, not to be confused with the place in Evanston, uh, but the one up here in St. Paul. And uh, it's a new job that I get to go and visit her there. I was an uh, alum of Northwestern. I love the beautiful campus. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, it's a, a place of evangelical higher education is the, the, the situation there, the culture there. And so when I go and visit my wife in her office, uh, not everybody knows who I am yet, so I try to make statements that stand out, you know, statements that are on, you know, on the edge of their lifestyle agreement, agreement just to get some attention, you know, to get some laughs or whatever, that type of thing. So a recent thing happened where uh, I was in the area and my wife right after her shift was done, would have to go to a soccer game, and she wanted to change of clothes that would be more comfortable to go to a game like that. So I packed up some clothes that she wanted and was uh, bringing them into that area and dropping them off at her office. And I'm thinking the whole time, what can I say to these coworkers so that they can continue to get to know me and my uh, dry sense of humor? And so I was starting to think about things and coming up with a story and just imagining what I was going to say as I'm going up the stairs to uh, meet whoever was behind the door. I didn't know who it was going to be. It could be a student worker. I think it ended up being one of the resident directors uh, that, was, that was there that I've never met before. So I go through the door, and this person doesn't know me. We make eye contact. I gesture to the pile of clothes and just say, uh, Tracy left these at my place last night. <laughs> Tracy immediately jumps up and just, just you know, makes a noise and just says, ah, it's my husband, you know, don't mind him, he's always this dumb. <laughs> and the reason I think that there's such a funny thing to say at an evangelical institution is that's a phrase that somebody would use for something more like a one-night stand, but we've been married for close to 20 years. Her clothes live in our house for the last couple decades. That's where they belong, which is why it was such a ridiculous thing to say. But one of the things I thought of with that statement is, is that it was interesting to me, like why something that, like, that could land in a very like, evangelical setting. And I think it's because like, we have a view of marriage that you know, is very historic and has been something that the scriptures has talked about for years. But we also are in a culture where we understand what that phrase is getting at. The, almost the view of romance and sex that's behind a phrase like that, that's actually, even if we don't participate in a lifestyle like that, it's very familiar to us, which is why what makes saying something like that at Northwestern uh, a hilarious thing to say, especially if somebody doesn't know who you are. The goal of this sermon is going to continue to unpack that theme because one of the things I've been contending is that even if you're a Christian, you are influenced by secular frameworks of the good life more than you think you are. And also, maybe if you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, there's, there's things that you experience about uh, different things, like sex and romance in this case, that leave you 
wanting more, that leave you confused, that, leave, that, that essentially say to you, like, there's got to be more to it than this because it's so exhausting to participate in these things the way our culture is calling us to do so. So the goal of this sermon is to get us to transition from being a hopeless romantic about these things to being a hopeful romantic. And we're going to consider not only romance, but also uh, things uh, associated with the, our worldview, uh, our world's view, that is, of sex in comparison to the Christian view of sex. One book that I'll give a shout out for that, that really influences a lot of the themes in this sermon, uh, especially kind of the cultural um, unpacking of how our world thinks about these things, is a book by uh, Jonathan Grant called Divine Sex, A Compelling Vision for Christian Relationships in a Hypersexualized Age. I didn't get the opportunity to read that in a public coffee house, but that would have been fun, would have drawn some eyes if that was the title of something that somebody was reading next to you. Uh, it's a good book. It's a little dense, FYI, if it sounds interesting to you, kind of have a lot of coffee and read it in the mornings, that type of book. But nonetheless, it was a very, very helpful book for this sermon. So let's start with what our world views and casts as a vision, I would say, as, as this hopeless romantic vision about romance and sex. I think in our world, there are many different views about sex. It's not just one. Uh, let me give you a couple before I give you what I would say is the dominant view. One view is the neutral view of sex. It considers the desire for sex just as natural as a desire for food or a nap. Uh, and if that's what you feel like doing, then just do it. Sex shouldn't be taken so seriously according to this view. One needs to avoid negative consequences associated with sex, just like we do in our relationship with food. But at the end of the day, uh, the, this is just one desire of many natural things that we experience. This would probably be the type of worldview you would hear in a sex ed class uh, that your kids or maybe you remember experiencing. Another view I would call is the prudish view of sex. This considers the desire for sex a passion that needs to be tamed and put in its place. Sex in, in the, sex in this worldview sometimes is thought of as a dirty thing at worst, or at best something that shouldn't be talked about in polite company. And if you do like it, just keep that to yourself. The only purpose of sex in this worldview is really for having children. So if you have to have kids, just do the act in the dark, mostly clothed and under multiple layers of blankets. And then quickly follow it up with a time of lament and prayer. That's kind of the vibe that's uh, in this more prudish view of sex. You'll most likely hear a view like this, uh, maybe more dominant in religious settings. Now with these two views in mind, there is sometimes some unfortunate and inconsistent ways that the two views are mixed together. For example, the neutral view is often applied to men but not women, whereas the prudish view is expected of women but not men. And this double standard is something that is leading to very uh, frustrating experiences with how our world often views sex. Now, these may be two views that you've experienced, but I don't think either one is the most dominant view. I think the most dominant view about sex is the romantic view of sex. And that view sees sex as not only significant, but maybe the most significant way to express yourself. In our world, finding yourself is not only individualized, but also sexualized. The best way to truly find yourself and truly belong is to find that person who is the one. 
and experience the act that is viewed as the pinnacle of human experience, the act of sex. Because of this high view of sex, it's often the case that if you go through life without ever experiencing it, then you're falling short of being a human being. You're, you're missing out, and that's why comedies mock the idea of a 40-year-old virgin, for example. Now, this is the view I want to go deeper into because I think this, again, is the one that dominates us. And let me uh, really illustrate it with the idea of a soulmate. You ever heard of the, the pursuit that we should all have to find a soulmate? It's an example of this uh, romantic view of self and sex. And it goes something like this, the idea of a soulmate. You are a person who deserves to be loved and needed, especially intimately, and there is someone out there who is the one, and this is the person that's going to meet all of your needs. This person will complete you. There's movies, right, that say phrases like that. And you might be at this point, what's the problem with that? Sounds like a great deal if I could find such a person. But here's three problems with this idea of uh, finding the one or the soulmate. First, there's the problem of imperfection. Everyone you date and everyone you marry is going to have shortcomings. It reminds me of a sitcom back in the 90s called Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld was a comedian who was the main character, and his character was this single character who constantly was dating people but found the most trivial reasons to break up with that person. Some of the examples through different episodes, he broke up with somebody because she had an annoying laugh, she cried when she dropped a hot dog, she ate peas one at a time, and she liked a commercial, a commercial that he did not like. Those were the reasons that he figured out, ah, she's not the one for me, she's not perfect, and so he kept breaking up with her. So the problem with finding this perfect soulmate is you will not only find out things about that, some, that somebody that might be annoying, but you also have to figure out things like communication and conflict resolution in order to make the re relationship work. Number two, there's also the problem of limitations. A soulmate not only needs to be perfect, but also needs to bear all that weight uh, that is expected of a relationship like this, the relational, emotional, and psychological weight that is expected of a soulmate. When you have a significant other or a spouse, you want that person not to be just a friend, you want that soulmate to be your best friend. But here's the situation, if you're in a room, and here's a thought experiment, with a bunch of people that you're close to, but there's only one person that really knows you, and that's your significant other or your spouse, that's the person that you hang out with the most and really is the only person there that knows you best. The problem is, is that we're finite human beings that often cannot bear all that relational responsibility being leveled on us and us alone. You're putting a lot of weight on somebody that has limitations when human beings are made for community, that there's friends and colleagues and neighbors that fill different relational needs that we have in our life, but often in this search for a soulmate, when we find that person, we expect that person to meet all those needs. It's one of the reasons I preached a sermon about friendship before this sermon, to be able to highlight that. Then finally, there's the problem of expectations. The expectations of the search for soulmate is fueled by getting your needs met. This makes the emphasis on relationships more about what you get out of the relationship rather than what you contribute to the relationship. 
It's more about how this person makes you feel. But what happens after that initial infatuation with this person wears off and you're faced with something that requires your sacrifice for the sake of the relationship? When you're finally asked to do something for this person for a longer season that is entering into a time of uncertainty and suffering. One of the ways I've highlighted this before is that there's a sense that many modern people are uh, emotional gold diggers. You know what a gold digger is? Usually that's a person that's after somebody else's uh, pocketbook. Emotional gold digging is the similar thing, but the currency is different. It's not money, but this person makes me feel this way, and as long as that's the payment that I'm receiving, I'm in this relationship, but once that currency dries up, then I'm out, because clearly this person is not the soulmate that I deserve. A hopeless romantic is one who continues to buy into this unrealistic vision of identity, relationships, and intimacy despite the struggles and the headache. Or sometimes a hopeless romantic might finally respond to these realities of these problems by keeping people now at arm's length and trying to figure out things for longer seasons. Author Jonathan Grant, who I mentioned already, calls this the definite maybe or try before you buy approach to relational commitment. Grant writes, quote, if intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They are high-risk projects with little or no collateral security, end quote. Expressions of this approach, he goes on to say, are uh, the situations of living or sleeping together before marriage in hopes of finding out if things are going to work out. You have to try this out. And that's the intention of this approach, is to improve the likelihood of a successful marriage through something like a wed lease before you get into a wedlock. Yet what's unfortunate is that stats show that this approach decreases the likelihood of this successful marriage rather than improves it. There are many reasons why, but one is because sharing life and intimacy always has a higher likelihood of thriving within a long-term commitment rather than an uncertainty of a trial run. That is the world that we experience when it comes to romance, sex, relationship, and it has an impact on singles as well as those who are married. Now, I want to contrast that with what the scriptures would say is the good life when it comes to relationship, romance, and marriage. What does it mean to go from a hopeless romantic to a hopeful romantic? Let's start with uh, the doctrines in Scripture that we find with creation and covenant. Look at Genesis 2.23 with me. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Here we have creation, and in the beginning God made them male and female, both in his image. And through marriage, a man and a woman unite together to become one flesh. They become husband and wife, and then they become mother and father to anyone that their uh, union brings into this world, and they care for that child in a household of love. This union in Scripture is often referred to as one flesh, which means that this is a comprehensive union of all levels of life, not just a bodily union. 
This is a union that is emotional, psychological, bodily, material. In other words, it's a comprehensive and holistic union. In Scripture, this oneness is not based on emotion. It's actually based on covenant, commitment, making promises to one another. As I have already mentioned, our world says that happiness, defined as emotion, is the basis for romance or marriage, but if that runs out, then you can break up the relationship. But in Scripture, covenant unites man and woman in marriage. A covenant is a commitment or a promise where vows are made to one another. And many of you have heard traditional vows said in wedding ceremonies. Uh, it's a declaration to, of a commitment to the other person to unite throughout life no matter what life will bring. It means that you are going to stay together whether there's financial security or times of losing everything, whether you can afford a house or not, whether one is sick or one is healthy, whether intimacy is running hot or running cold, whether you're facing joys or pain, no matter what the relationship faces, the relationship stays together to love and to cherish till death do you part. That's the purpose of the vows is to declare publicly and to one another this covenant about what the grounds for this relationship are and what it would take to break it. That's why sex in Scripture comes after this covenant is made. The covenant declares clearly the nature of the relationship in public, and then within the boundaries and security of those promises, the covenant act of sex occurs. It turns out that sex has a better opportunity to flourish in this situation, including persevering through times when it's not going well, when you know that this is more than a one-night stand, that this is more than something that somebody could break at any day, that it's something that perseveres throughout life no matter what life will bring. And sex then functions in marriage and throughout marriage as a way to express a renewal of this covenant, to continue to say to your spouse in a holistic and vulnerable way, I have wholly, completely, and exclusively given myself to you. In the storyline of Scripture, sex is created to be good based on covenant. Now, let, you get, let me give you another example uh, about how Scripture celebrates sex from the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, just <laughs> Solomon, just remember that this is, this is Scripture, this is biblical, this is, you know, the ancient way that people hit on one another, and that's kind of what's going on with the language here. But it gives you an idea that the Scripture is not prudish when it comes to the topic of sex. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, 6 through 9. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. This is the man talking to the woman. Your stature is like that of a palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I will say, I will climb that palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Holy Spirit. Do you believe that's in the Scripture? Right? It's, it's okay going there and celebrating this expressive and holistic act within the bounds of a covenant. That's a, you know, ancient but spicy biblical way that this is expressed through poetry. Now, we also know in the storyline of Scripture that sex is created to be good, but because of the sin and brokenness of the world, it's not always experienced as good. 
In Genesis 3, all our relationships are broken because of human beings deciding for themselves what is good and evil rather than remaining within God's good boundaries and way of love. Sin impacts everything in our world, including sex and relationships. Dating and trying to find a spouse for reasons already outlined in the sermon is sometimes frustrating and difficult. Also, in an over-sexualized culture, all relationships are impacted because of this view of sex, because it's not reserved for one clearly defined relationship where sex is appropriate. In our world, any relationship can become sexual, whether with a neighbor or a friend or a colleague at work. You can no longer just enjoy the relationship for what the relationship is. There's always this suspicion and maybe an expectation that it could go there, which is frustrating and exhausting. And once you're married, you're not guaranteed everything is going to be great. That's one of the things that, that religious communities, this weird, like, like false promise that if you, just, if you just do everything right, you'll finally get married and everything is going to be great in that area. Not thinking, but that the fall impacts Christians, religious people, irreligious people, regardless, even when you enter into the covenant of marriage. Financial demands and demands of work result in weeks for couples that are far outside of a 40-hour work week, which doesn't give much room to connect intimately. Or you have single parents raising children by themselves because the other person didn't stay committed, even though that's what the person wanted. Times on screens consuming movies and images replace pursuit with the person that you've made promises to, and it, it distorts uh, uh, the way that we often view sex and intimacy. It's also really common to experience not being comfortable in your own skin, or sex can be painful physically or mentally for various reasons, or sex becomes associated with painful experiences such as infertility and miscarriages, and this all explains how sex might be created to be good, but it's often experienced in deeply painful ways. Now, in areas that we have personally contributed to these things, the scriptures call us to repent, to confess our sins and to turn from them where we have areas of conviction and taking responsibility for the actions that we have done that provided to a world like this. But we are Christian people, so may you hear the gospel if that's where you're at after my description of how the fall impacted these areas. Jesus Christ died for your sins and raised from the dead on the third day. He has power to forgive you if you turn to his love, and his way is a path of truth and beauty and grace that leads to human flourishing for sinners like us. But I also think um, we do have to reflect on bearing our responsibility for how we've contributed to these things, but I think there's sometimes an emphasis on a sermon like this, an emphasis that we miss. And that is the reality that we also live in a world that's not our home. And we experience these things in such broken ways that are beyond our control. And if that's you, you need to give yourself some space to also grieve and to lament the burdens that you have been bearing related to this topic. And for you, may you hear the gospel as well. Jesus not only came to rescue us from sin, but also to restore us to being truly human. 
And often this world is so inhumane and so difficult, and it breaks us down. But Jesus sympathizes with his people. He has faced our suffering of this world, and he overcomes those things. He does not break us down, but he calls us into relationship with him to build his people up and to call us on a great mission. And that's another unique angle that the gospel and the Christian faith gives about a topic like this, is that is that, that whether you're single or you're married, we are called to a great mission for a greater purpose, especially as it relates to these things, a greater purpose than what the world says is the purpose of relationships and sex and romance. God still has purposes for his glory in these areas. Paul writes, for example, in 1 Corinthians that being married is not more holy than being single and also vice versa, that each person has their own gift from God. One's not better than the other or more pure than the other, but God has his purposes in each. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul is single, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Each person has a gift, meaning either single, unmarried, and chaste, or united to a spouse, married, and intimate. Both are different callings, and both are different gifts. If anyone has ever told you you have the gift of singleness, this is probably where it's coming from. But usually in a phrase like that, there's a misunderstanding of what that means, what a gift from God is, what it, what it regards. Many understand that having a gift is something that comes easy or naturally to them. It's something that you're at peace with, or at least you should be. But that's not the way the Scriptures talk about a gift from God. The emphasis of gift in Scripture is a calling or a vocation that's for the sake of building others up. That's the purpose of a gift. It's also, especially in the context of relationship, not necessarily something you're locked into for life. But the nature of a gift can change. A calling can change as the Lord wills, but whatever the calling or the gift that you have, its main purpose is the glory of God and the building up of others. So if the gift is marriage, that doesn't mean that the marriage will be easy, but it does mean that the main purpose of this gift, of this vocation, is to build up your family in the Lord so that your household will be a blessing to others. Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians 5 that marriage has the purpose to reflect the mystery of the gospel to the world. Notice that the ultimate purpose of marriage isn't romance or sex, it's the gospel. The love between a husband and a wife is a reflection of love between Christ and the church. So the main purpose of marriage isn't self-fulfillment, but self-sacrifice so that the world would know the good news. Yet, singleness, which Paul prefers, is also a holy calling. He says in 1 Corinthians 7.32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Here Paul is saying that the calling of signalness is also a calling to build others up in the Lord with a focus on different types of relationships, friendships, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your neighbors, 
It's a focus outside of the responsibilities and burdens of marriage and parenting. For Paul, you have to understand that he believes time is short, and there's so much to be done to build up the church, to love your neighbors, and to restore our communities. And Christ has come, and he's coming again to make all things new. And so for Paul, the single life serves as a purpose of pointing beyond itself to this reality of a life devoted to the Lord in a way that a married life cannot be. And it's an incredible and powerful testimony, that vocation of the single life, life in a world that idolizes sex and sexual relationships. It says that the mission of God and intimacy with Him is ultimate, not getting married or expressing uh, your sexuality in that way. Now, this is one of the big points that I want to end the sermon on is, is the idea that marriage and sex is not ultimate. It's good, it's a good gift, but it's not ultimate in the scriptures. That's what the point of the scripture reading was. In Luke chapter 20, 34 through 38, Jesus replies to this inquiry about marriage where all the, this person married multiple people and they all died and now they're raised from the dead, so who is that person married to? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age of to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for, him all, for to him all are alive. The purpose of this passage is mainly about the resurrection, but it has implications for how we view marriage. The main assumption in the question that Jesus was asked is that if the resurrection happens, well, that means marriage continues, and what do you do if you've had multiple spouses in your marriage? This is the assumption that Christ pushes back on. He agrees that marriage happens in this age, in this life, but in the life to come after the resurrection, things are different. After the resurrection, Jesus teaches, there is no marriage. Why? The reason in this passage is they cannot die anymore. There's no more death. And one of the major reasons, especially culturally in Jesus' time, for marriage is to pass on your name, to pass on your inheritance to the next generation. But the issue now is that you do that because you are going to die. But in the resurrection, there's no more death. And those who are worthy of the resurrection are, get to participate in this time. One of the purposes of marriage is to have that, uh, have offspring, but in this time, in this age, that is no longer needed. It's no longer a vocation to be had because we will always be alive to never die again. One of the purposes of this, one of the implications of this for our sermon topic today is that marriage and sex are good, but not ultimate. It's one of the things that will pass away when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead and to raise his people from the dead. That's why the entire pursuit of a soulmate in our culture is like trying to eat bread that doesn't satisfy our hunger or to drink something that never will satisfy our thirst. We are after something to satisfy us in a way that only God can. 
So maybe an unpopular opinion that I would have for you pastorally is there's no such thing as a human soulmate. There's probably lots of different people that are respectable, good-looking human beings that love Jesus that you can come together with in life and to give yourselves to this purpose of not only the vocation of marriage, but the vocation of showing the world what the gospel is. There's probably a lot of different people that you could work that out with. However, I think there's something to this pursuit of a soulmate that's telling about us, that we do want somebody to fulfill all that need relationally, spiritually, intimately, in a holistic way. But one of the things we keep running into is that human beings will not do it. We're trying to find rest in these relationships, but it continues to make us restless. We try to find belonging in this relationship, but we still don't feel like we quite belong, and this person is quite satisfying us. And that's why we get ourselves in this situation because we don't see beyond what these things are pointing to, but what you're actually longing in your pursuit of intimacy and connection and belonging is something that you can only find in God and God alone. That is the wedding feast that brings the good life. Revelation 19.9 says it this way, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In that day, our real sense of belonging will be fulfilled. Our restless hearts will find rest in the home of Christ, where we belong, where we have peace forever, and where the intimacy, the connection that we so long to have will be fulfilled in the one whom we are made for. Blessed are those who are hopeful romantics.